So I think, again, it's this trope that Asians are great kind of railroad workers, but we're not enough to be the railroad barons. And I only found out recently that you know, we were erased from the pictures and the history of building the railroads. They brought 16,000 Chinese workers to build the railroads here. But at the end of the day, the photos, they asked them to step out of the pictures and it was all white men and Leland Stanford taking the glory of connecting the Union Central Pacific Railroads. What's up everyone and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline Education. I'm thrilled to be here today with Dave Liu, managing partner at Hyphen Capital, co-founder of Expo, and leader of Stand with Asian Americans. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bethany. So Dave and I were classmates in business school. And Dave, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself as we get started today for the folks tuning in. Give them a sense of your background, where you come from. Tell us a little sure. bit about your family and we'll kick it off that way. All right. So I am Taiwanese American. I was born in New York and grew up most of my life in New Jersey and uh, the Princeton area. My dad was an engineer. My mom worked. She started her own you know, freight forwarding company and they would commute an hour and a half to New York and I would be mostly latchkey kid, taking care of my TV. Um, but I went to high school in New Jersey, went to college at Penn, studied finance at Wharton and came out to the Bay Area to work in tech. So I first came out here for a consulting job. I didn't know at that time it was this dates myself, but it was 1998. And it was when like kind of tech was just starting. So, you know, Yahoo, Google wasn't even a thing yet. And so I started a job in consulting and decided to make the switch over to, to work at Yahoo back in 1999. And so some people thought it's crazy because they're like, what are these internet companies? But for me, I was very into computers and tech at the time. And so I joined. And one of the reasons I joined Yahoo specifically was because Jerry Yang was the founder and he was, you know, the only Taiwanese American founder, you know, or Asian American founder that I had really seen of a company that was that size. And so it was kind of for me, an inspiration to be around someone like that. At the time, it was only a thousand people or so, and it obviously grew, but it was a special time to be there when Silicon Valley was, you know, just, I mean, there's not always been a lot of tech here, but I think the explosion of the internet and everything and software here just was a very interesting time to be here. So I have seen, I guess, if you don't call a pandemic a third bubble, then you know, through 2001 and then 2008 and then again pandemic. So it's changed a lot since then. But from there, I went to join. My dad passed away, so I moved back home to take care of my mom in New Jersey. So I joined Sony and then I got a call from Derek at Stanford and I joined you and are the classmates at Stanford for business school and came back to California before working at Apple and then eBay. And so, you know, for the audience, I've worked in big tech. And by the time I got to eBay, I realized I didn't want to work in big tech anymore. So I moved on to a startup in San Francisco and learned just about that startup life and what that was like and decided, you know, I think I really like this, but I want to do it myself. So I started my first company. I bootstrapped that company, Van Pop, for almost 10 years. It was in the 
entertainment and media space. It was fun for me because I love you know entertainment media and I got to meet a lot of people and see a lot of things. But I decided after that, I was you know very curious about marketplaces. So I joined a friend's company to learn about that called Lux. And so it was, for those of you who've been around the Valley, it was the company that would you could drop your car off and they would valet it for you anywhere you are. You just drop a pin on your app and the valet would show up on a scooter. The economics were very tough on the business. So, you know, I was there for not even that long before I decided I want to start my own company again. I think when you're a founder and you work for someone else again, it's you're essentially unhirable because it's very difficult to work for someone else. But I did end up partnering with a friend of mine who was a Stanford grad who did not go this traditional route. His parents, Filipino-American, his parents were physicians in Ohio, and he went to culinary school in New York. So he went to the French Culinary Institute in New York. And his first job was working for Thomas Keller at Per Se in New York, you know, as a prep cook, Comey. And he worked his way up. And if, if there are foodies who are listening, he worked with Corey Lee and other kind of famous chefs along the way. But he realized he was not nearly as talented as those guys were. So those guys and girls were. So he decided to, you know, work in... He transferred to French Laundry. He worked at French Laundry. And then he decided to... Thomas Keller was like, hey, you went to Stanford. You're Asian. You should run IT. So he just ran the IT department for Thomas Keller and the restaurant group. And it was, you know, he learned a lot from it, but he decided he wanted to start his own restaurant chain. So he started a small, fast, casual restaurant chain called Spice Kit. So if you're in Peninsula and Palo Alto or in San Francisco, you know, you might know this place is kind of like a bun mi and like sandwich place. And he found it very hard to run that business because they were always understaffed. So he thought of a way to solve that. And that was what we started called Paired. And we filled in the gaps for people who had experience who were looking for you know flexibility and to be able to make more money as someone working in the hospitality industry. And we ended up starting that company. It was kind of known as the Uber for cooks, if you will. I didn't love that name, but we grew. We raised about $30 million. And you know, since the pandemic, it was tough for us being in the restaurant industry. So we've since pivoted to an enterprise SaaS software business called Expo that we are now working with large restaurant chains such as Macaroni Grill and to kind of be the business intelligence software for them. So that's all the work stuff. During that time as a founder... Wait, that's sorry, not all the work stuff. <laughs> I mean, the company stuff. So during that time as a founder being in the Bay Area, I had noticed that a lot of my friends who were black founders, Indian founders, you know, Jewish founders, LGBT founders, they all had a community, but there was no real community for East and Southeast Asian founders just because I think we've always been Asian American as a collective is a very, it's not a, a new thing, but it's never been, it's not always been fully embraced because we are so different and we come from such different backgrounds and speak different languages, different cultures, different, you know, histories. And I only learned recently that the name Asian American came from UC Berkeley, where protesters needed a banner to march in solidarity with black protesters for civil rights. And they had to put something together and they came out with Asian American as one banner to march with. And so I think, you know, when you go to college, there's always different groups you go into from, you know, there's a Korean Student Association, Filipino Student Association, Chinese. So it's very fragmented. And that's one reason why I think there wasn't much solidarity here or community here for East and Southeast Asian founders. So I started just random dinners with these founders I knew, and it just slowly built a community of founders that over the years grew and grew to about, I think pre-pandemic was about 200 founders. And then during that time, I had seen a lot of community happen from people mentoring and investing and advising in younger founders. People have made it and done well already to help out the younger founders kind of find their way. But I want to codify that during the pandemic because a lot of people hadn't raised pre-pandemic and they were running out of cash and they just needed to bridge capital to get to the next round or just to survive. So I thought I would help out a few companies, syndicate some angels and help them out. And a friend of mine who, Tracy Chu, who's 
this year's Time Magazine Women of the Year. She has 100,000 followers on Twitter and she's an amazing woman. And she tweeted the essay I wrote just internally for the group and it kind of blew up. And, you know, I was honestly afraid I was going to get canceled because I thought, you know, the black and brown founders have every right to say, I mean, they would be very upset. It's like, why would you just give to Asian founders? They make enough money. They have enough money. When in reality, that isn't the case because I think the model minority myth lumps us all together that to say that we all are in the same socioeconomic you know, strata and that we all make the same amount of money or we all are easily able to raise money because they see some successful Asian founders. When in fact, we don't come from trust fund families. You know, we had to pay for school through loans or, you know, we're still paying rent. We didn't get given our houses. And so when we start companies, we literally can't afford to do it either because we don't have kind of that nest egg to fall back on. So it's very risky for us. And our parents are not supportive at all. If anything, they're the ones that are telling us kind of disowning us for quitting our jobs at Google that we got after, you know, we all paid for school to go to. And, you know, it's tough for a lot of Asian founders to even, you know, start a company, take that risk to go against their parents' wishes and everything they've sacrificed as immigrants to get them where they are today. So on the flip side, I thought, oh man, there are probably going to be some white investors, white males who would be very upset. And as they said, you know, if I did something like this, I would be called racist. And so I was like, okay, this is going to be an interesting response. I ended up writing a Twitter thread and a LinkedIn thread post about it. And I got a million views on LinkedIn and I didn't get any negative feedback. I got one white male saying that this would be racist if he did it. And so that was fine. But that's how the industry has been forever. So it's not like no skin off my back. So for me, I think what was most exciting is that I saw obviously founders who are very, that resonated with the, the essay and I was doing coming to me. But more importantly, there were so many people who wanted to invest and get involved that reached out. These were hedge fund managers, doctors, lawyers, scientists, people had nothing to do with startups. But they, I mean, for for many of them, I think they had dreams that they would have wanted to pursue if they hadn't felt the obligation to their parents to do what they were doing. I literally had like the heads of hospitals at Harvard reach out and say, you know, I don't know that I would have chosen to do this, but I'm here now and I can't really get out of it. But I love what you're doing. And then other people saying, hey, I really appreciate that you've you know, decided to invest in this, you know, mission and I want to support you. So it was really cool to see. And so we've gone on from invest, thinking about investing in two or three companies and supporting them, a few hundred thousand dollars. We've invested almost over $20 million in 70 Asian American founded companies with over 40% are women. So I think it's been really amazing to be able to not just talk about that change, but be able to make it because, you know, I see, I've raised money in venture and I've seen the dynamic and I see how hard it is for, you know, founders of color, women founders to even be taken seriously at some of these meetings because it's almost like the decision's already made before they even get there. And some of them don't have access to the networks that some of us have. And so I want to be able to bridge that. And so, you know, my mission is to allow more women and people of color to be seen and raise money because honestly, I do believe that more, you know, of these founders would be ringing the bell at, on Wall Street and going public if they can get that early stage capital because we just don't come from, you know, all the black founders I know, like I can only imagine how hard it must have been for them because they couldn't even raise wealth. Their parents couldn't get wealthy because they couldn't buy real estate because of redlining. So it goes so far back that you can't even get into the right schools, get into the right networks and open the doors that a lot of other founders do have. And so, you know, again, if we can somehow level the playing field for a lot of founders, I think that's huge. So anyway, so that's what I've been doing while I'm, you know, founding. It's a side thing. Uh, it keeps me, you know, decently busy as well. But yeah, that's basically, you know, what I've been up to for the past, oh gosh, now 20 some odd years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, thank you so much for providing that context to us. And I want to make sure I wasn't sure I actually heard 
the name hyphen capital, which is oh yeah, it's called hyphen interest. capital, yeah. <laughs> so yes, it's still a syndicate. I haven't started a proper fund yet, but yeah, hyphen is the name because I think. For a lot of us third culture kids, we call it third culture because we bridged our Asian heritage with our you know American identities. And so it used to be you would hyphenate the words, but now you're not supposed to. But for me, that hyphen represented a bridge between the two cultures that we always had a straddle, you know, between being American and being Asian, honoring our parents, but also honoring ourselves. So yeah, so that's what hyphen stands for. Well, thank you. And another term that you have used and sort of a driving inspiration for you behind hyphen capital is the concept of the bamboo ceiling. And I wasn't sure if you explained your investment thesis using that terminology, but I wanted to just put a finer point on it. Yeah. So I think having been in big tech for so many years and being in the Valley for so long, you know, I also fell and my whole life I've fallen under the model minority myth because I mean, I ended up going to the right schools and being able to go to the right schools and getting big paying jobs and whatnot. So, you know, I think I fell into that until I realized, you know, it doesn't matter how hard a lot of Asians worked in the Valley, they would never actually get promoted to beyond a certain level. And there was data that I went to a talk and two Stanford GSB alums actually were, were running this group called Ascend. And they, they showed us the data and Tony Shu from DoorDash and other folks were there too. And they showed us the data of how many people from the Valley make it beyond a certain level that are Asian American and other races. And the index from, you know, entry level to being promoted beyond it, like a director level even was atrocious for Asians. It was by far the worst. Other races would leapfrog over us, but like, you know, you see white males being you know, 42% of the workforce, but then like 70% of the executive, like the C-level. And then Asians would be 40% of the workforce, but 2% of the C-level or something, you know, ridiculous. So it was the kind of, you'd have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to try to explain why that is. And many would argue or they would say, oh, they're just not aggressive enough. They're not strong enough leaders. They're too passive. Yada, yada, BS answer that I'm not accepting. Because if that was true, then we wouldn't have Zoom or DoorDash or many other companies that were started by Asian Americans that are successful. So I think, again, it's this trope that Asians are great kind of railroad workers, but we're not enough to be the railroad barons. And I only found out recently that, you know, we were erased from the pictures and the history of building the railroads. They brought 16,000 Chinese workers to build the railroads here. But at the end of the day, the photos, they asked them to step out of the pictures and it was all white men and Leland Stanford taking the glory of connecting the Union Central Pacific Railroads. And so, you know, that hasn't changed much today that a lot of the, you know, the workers in a lot of these tech companies are, you know, immigrants from Asia, from India, from China, from wherever. And it's the same as at labs and other places in research facilities, academia. I mean, a lot of the work and credit that's not been given to the has been all made off the backs of all these immigrants. And then that's unfortunately in a lot of industries. So I think for me, I saw that and I thought, you know, we can do a lot to try to break through this. And there are, to their credit, I know a lot of friends who've actually made it and done very well in kind of the executive ranks in public companies, private companies. But to see that disparity, I felt the only way to change that is if we start build our own houses, if we start our own companies. And because that also inspires others to kind of become leaders and know that they're accepted. And I think by choosing to build your own company, you can also bring along others with you and choose to kind of uplift other kind of people that are left behind or aren't accepted at other places. So, you know, when I started my company, I felt the same way. And so I made sure, you know, we were hiring people of color, people of LGBT community. Like, I think it was super important and even people who are older. And I think that's something that is also, you know, people are kind of left out here in the Valley because you're supposed to be a 22 year old white male if you're going to make it here. And that's 
to me, that's not okay. So I think, you know, the bamboo ceiling for me has been something that, you know, I've less been about shattering than about just ignoring altogether and just building our own houses. Mm -hmm. And Dave, one of the themes that you're talking quite a lot about today, but also that you write about prolifically on LinkedIn and other platforms is about representation. You were just talking about the invisibility of the Asian American community, but other communities as well in tech. And this happened really recently and very publicly with a Business Insider article talking about seven billionaires and the pictures were three white men even though there were Asian founders in the article as well. And you spoke out about it really forcefully. Will you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. I didn't even notice it myself because these are the things that I've been programmed not to notice, right? I'm just like, I just assumed that's how it was. But a friend brought it to my attention and I thought, wait a second, three out of seven of these billionaires are, and it's the most ridiculous topic because yes, it's billionaires. You know, boo-hoo for them. But that wasn't what like I was complaining about. I was saying, you have seven people and three of them are, you know, Asian, and one of them has made five billion, like five times more than anyone else in this list. And yet you choose to highlight and feature the photos of three white men versus just choosing one of the Asian men. You could feature just one. But statistically, that's just almost improbable that you would do that unless it was intentional. So for me, it was just very kind of upsetting to notice that whether it's unconscious or conscious bias that Asians continue to be made invisible in these stories of success. And these are stories that could inspire, you know, a lot of kids and next generation because I saw Jerry Yang and that's why I wanted to be what I was. So I think by erasing them from the stories and the media not featuring, you know, Asians, you know, that's not okay with by me. And I think it was a very kind of tangible example of that erasure that was called out. They fixed it. They updated it and apologized. But I think when I honestly did not think it was going to get as big as it got like 2 million views on LinkedIn. And I mean, I think to be able to share that as a very pointed example of what erasure means or making Asians feel invisible means, it was, I think a lot of people really felt that and the power of that and saying, wow, this is how I feel at work all the time, or this is how I feel in my daily life or wherever I'm at. And so to be able to say, no, it's not okay and calling it out is another lesson I think a lot of people learn. It's like, wait, if you call out something, it can change. It can actually make them take it back or they will edit it. And so I think that whole episode was proof that it's like, hey, don't just stand back and take it, right? Like, you know, if you keep taking it, they're going to keep giving it to you. So, you know, you need to stand up to the bullies and then do something about it. So that's what I did. And hopefully it sets an example for more people to do the same. I thought it was awesome. And another very visible example of you kind of leading from the front and saying what needs to be said was you were part of a group of Asian Americans who took out a full page ad in the Wall Street yep. Journal. And the headline was one word. And that word was enough. Can you talk to us a little bit about that work? Yeah, that all happened during the pandemic. And I was seeing all these kind of videos in my Instagram feed and my Facebook feed of elderly Asians getting beaten and attacked and, you know, killed. And then other Asians, like Asian women getting acid thrown on them or a young Asian man getting stabbed in the back for no reason, homeless, you know, like Asian men getting killed. And it was just story after story that broke my heart. And it was the Atlanta murders that was a last straw that kind of, you know, that broke the camel's back because I couldn't take it anymore. I said, after what the Asian community has done for this country, invisible or not, the things that we've done here to be treated this way, like foreigners, like we don't belong here, like we can be just disposed of and especially treating elderly that way. For Asians in our culture and other cultures, that is the ultimate 
sin because you don't treat your, you respect your elders, you honor your elders, you take care of them. You don't knock them over. You don't stab them. You don't mob them. It's disgraceful. And so when those moms and grandmothers were killed in Atlanta, I decided I was going to do something. I didn't know what to do. I mean, so many people reached out to me. He's like, Dave, what do we do? What do we do? And I said, hey, I'm writing a letter and I would love to look at it. A few of my friends, they started reviewing it and it was very angry at first. And, you know, there's a lot of emotions coming through that, but we kind of fixed it up. And I, th- I said, hey, let me post this and get a bunch of my friends to sign it. I'm fortunate that through my founders group and others, you know, my network, I knew a lot of very much more important people than I myself and I got them to sign it. And so we got about a thousand people to sign it, including the CEO of Google, you know, Zoom, DoorDash, everywhere. And, you know, DocuSign, it wasn't just Asian CEOs signing. There were a lot of, you know, white, black, you know, Indian, Latino. There are a lot of CEOs that signed this. And eventually it was like crazy. President Bush signed it. JJ Abrams signed it. Andre Godala signed it. I mean, it kind of blew up after that. And we decided to publish it in the Wall Street Journal as a full page ad. And some are like, I remember someone asked me, like, why would you spend that money publishing in a newspaper? And like, why does that matter? Why didn't you just donate it to some nonprofit organization that could have helped? And I said, because this is visible, this will be seen by people because this is something that we don't do. We always kind of sit passively and we don't make a fuss. And that's the reason, I mean, we're taught that in our cultures because of whatever political reasons back in people came from, you don't do that. Otherwise you lose your head for it. So we were like, you know, taught not to make a non-noise and to put a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal where a lot of people who would otherwise not see this because they can live in a vacuum and ignore it on a Facebook feed or an Instagram feed, they would have to see these words telling them it's like, you enough is enough. We've done all these things for this country. And yet like people still feel like they can treat us like foreigners or, you know, treat us this way. And I think that solidarity, that community, that, that kind of loud voice that has not been heard, even for me, it wasn't about everyone else necessarily seeing it. Then I had so many messages of people who were Asian that read it themselves and they cried because they had never seen anyone do that before, say those words before. Because you said the quiet part out loud, you're not supposed to say those things. Don't complain. Don't stand up for yourself if you, they treat you this way because you don't want to rock the boat. And it gave them courage. I had a mom-to-be. She was pregnant 38 weeks working at Google. She was at a gas station. Someone told her to go back to her country here in the Mountain View or whatever. And she said, she cried. And she's like, why am I staying here? I'm like, why don't I just go back to Asia where I don't feel this way or I, don't, I can feel safe? She read that letter and she said, no, like you're right. I should fight. Like, this is my country too. And so I think the fact that we even have to go through that or this she has to go through that breaks my heart because anytime I deal with these idiots who like think I'm not from here or I don't belong here or they, they ask the question of, oh, where are you really from? And, you know, all these kind of these microaggressions that I have to deal with and a lot of us have to deal with all the time or, oh, you speak English really well. I'm like, blankety blank. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, because I was born in Queens and I speak English just fine. <laughs> so, but like, that's the kind of energy I want more people to have. I think it's, you know, we put up with a lot of stuff and all honesty, like we shouldn't have to, but you know, I think for those of us who have done pretty well and have doors open to them, we need to open more doors to other people. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the big things that I really stress is that, you know, this is not just for our, ourselves, this is for everyone. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the letter. I think it's been amazing. We had about over 8,000, 9,000 people sign it. We have a goal of raising $10 million to, and I guess, started an organization called Stand With Asian Americans, standwithasianamericans.com, to pledge to support the Asian community and then also to, you know, in the workplace, also stand up when they see it. Because I think a lot of times in, you know, we're great for diversity. We count as diversity, but when it comes to DAI initiatives, we're not included. And we're not including the conversation mm-hmm. even because they think, oh, there's enough of you guys. So we don't need to bring you into the conversation, but 
that's another way to make us feel invisible. And I don't think that's okay. Mm. So in your answer to that question, and also in writing and other interviews that you've done, you've described the upbringing that you had as kind of a heads down mentality and not to cause trouble, not to speak out, just to kind of keep your head down and do your work and perform and excel. And yet you have written and spoken again, so prolifically on this issue, you have so much passion and intensity around the issue. And what I love about your voice, part of what I love about it is just how direct you are. You know, you're just not pulling any punches. You're not beating around the bush. You're saying what needs to be said, but I'm really interested in that journey coming from a place of don't make trouble Mm. and arriving in a place of, I'm going to say the hard thing that needs to be said. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was raised to be like that. I wasn't necessarily like that. I've caused trouble since I was a little kid. I was lighting fires at my neighbor's house and doing other things I should have done. So I, and honestly, I think a lot of that was not that my dad taught me to do that, but seeing my dad as an example of not tolerating injustice. And it was small things. Like if someone would cut in line with, I mean, I was embarrassed all heck as a little kid. But if someone cut in line when we were waiting for the little train at the mall, my dad would call it out and yell at the person. And I was like, oh gosh, this is so embarrassing. Like I try to run into a store because it's like, I like I didn't want him to cause a scene. But then I was like, wow. I mean, I knew it was wrong. In my heart, I saw it was wrong that the people just kind of stepped in front of us or went in a cut in line. And I was like, no, that's messed up. But okay, I guess we just take it. But he didn't. And so unfortunately, he did pass away when I was 25, but he hadn't seen any of the stuff I'm doing now. But I think um, this would be what he would want me to do to fight back from you know anyone who's you know promoting injustice or taking advantage of people or disadvantaged. And so I think a lot of that came from that. And you know I wasn't always the heads down perfect kid. I was suspended from high school because someone attacked me with a knife and I beat him up. And so I've always, yeah I know I don't yeah so that wasn't great. But hey he attacked me and so I was never been afraid to back down from a fight. But I think professionally we're you know it's a very different story on LinkedIn. It's supposed to be a very kind of, I think a lot of people go into LinkedIn being a professional network with a self-preservationist attitude that they can't speak up and they can't, you know, because they're going to hurt their careers. And I think at some point, if you're not true to yourself, then you're not really giving 100% anyway. So for me, I'm not fighting necessarily for myself because I'm like, I'm going to be fine. I already have the resume that I'm probably going to be fine. But for my boys to grow up, if they have to deal with the same stuff, I won't be okay with that. I'll know that if I didn't try to make this place better, you know, a better place for them when they grow up, that I've not done my job as a dad to take care of, you know, them and the other kids of this generation. I mean, producing this Jeremy Lin documentary that's in Tribeca because I was like inspired by him and his story. And I want other kids to be able to be inspired still by him working on this is the most random thing, but I'm working on kids books because I have two kids and I want them to see the stories of Asian Americans who've made it because, you know, there's children's books out there series with like, I think we looked at it, 30 different stories about famous people. And one of them is Asian of 30. And I thought, people don't realize how important it is to see someone that looks like them in the stories that they read. And as a kid, that's really important. So I want to write, if those stories and everything, if those stories don't exist, I want to make them happen and I want to make it exist. So a big thing I believe in is like, if you don't see something in the world, then make it into existence, like bring it to existence. Because if you're complaining about other people who are too, but who's going to do it if you don't? You know, so I think, I don't know, it's this mentality that's like, maybe as I'm older, as a dad now, I feel like what I'm leaving behind is so much more important. And so it's kind of like all the decisions I make now are, you know, what is the legacy I want to leave behind? Like, I mean, hopefully I don't die tomorrow, but if I were like, what have I done other than take care of my own bank account and, you know, my own situation? And I mean, I think I would have a lot of regrets if it was just that. 
You covered a lot of ground there and so much of it was important. And I want to double click on a couple of things that you said when you were talking about people approaching the discourse on LinkedIn from a self-preservationist perspective, you wrote once, you said people are afraid of the repercussions of speaking out, but the repercussions of not speaking out are often far worse. And this was actually inspired by an article on Anna Lai and her experience mm -hmm. with Lightspeed. And yet, like, we're in this, like, hyper-polarized moment in our country where it feels like there is a lot of risk to speak directly to speak your truth, risk of shaming, risk of being canceled. Beyond you just having a lot of chutzpah and just, you know, coming from, like, having a great dad who was a terrific role model for you and just sort of being spicy in your way and not backing down from a challenge... How can other people get comfortable with uncomfortable mm. topics of conversation? I'm thinking about how much time and energy we spend ignoring the elephant in the room, you mm. know, and asking people to kind of go through contortions to pretend it's not there, to pretend it's not important, partly because of fear of what will happen if we address it. How do we get people more comfortable? You know, that not yeah. every space, not every conversation is supposed to feel familiar and cozy. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's like we are going to be in those situations. But I think if you are uncomfortable for a reason that and you know that the reason there's a right and wrong in most situations. And if you continually feel like something's wrong and you don't speak out, I think that has you know repercussions in your mental health. And I think that a lot of people stay in bad situations that they shouldn't stay in. And if that means looking for another job or getting out of a situation rather than speaking up, that's fine too. No one should judge a person's decision on how they want to handle this because, you know, if they end up staying in it because they have bills to pay and they don't know if they can find another job or they have a visa issue and they can't leave the job, there are a lot of predicaments that people are in that, you know, it's no one's place to judge why they aren't doing more or saying more because I'm not one to know their situation. I can speak out because of my situation, you know, I'm doing okay. I have 800 people who are investing in companies with me. I have a startup and I'm very fortunate to be working. So I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, that person's particular situation and finding the right timing, the right, you know, there's a time and place for things, but we are often told that there's a time and place for things. And sometimes that kind of phrase, time and place for things, is meant to keep you quiet. Like it's like, and so, you know, if you feel like something is just wrong and it's not sitting right with you, you know, you obviously have to calculate whether it's worth saying something about. But, you know, sometimes one of the reasons why a lot of Asians don't get promoted is because they don't, you know, rock the boat. And a lot of people who have, whether it's justified confidence or unjustified confidence, they feel like they can say whatever they want. They're not afraid of repercussions. And so sometimes it's speaking up and that speaking up might actually get you more respect and credit from your peers than you realize. So I think it's about finding your voice. That to me is the most important thing. If where you're at, doesn't value your voice, then find somewhere else. This mm -hmm. life is too short to be staying at a place where you are kind of made to feel insignificant or inconsequential. Another thing that I love about the stories that you tell, some of them are at the societal level, you know, and some of them are very personal. And for example, you talked about an experience that you had with your son. You were playing with the koala crate from Kiwi mm -hmm. Crate. And you noticed that they were using, they were explaining letters of the alphabet using Asian foods, like you for udon. Yep. And you were very moved by that experience. And I was moved that you would share it. And the reason why I was mm. moved was 
as you said, like LinkedIn can be such a polished experience. Self-promoting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Self-promoting a little bit of self-promoting, a little bit of polish, a little bit of like yeah. only the good stuff, you know? And I think like just having that moment with your child and reflecting on what it meant to you and to your family and being able to be both vulnerable and also really, really happy and hopeful, I thought was just such a wonderful thing to share with the world. Do you want to say a little bit more about what happened? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I was just playing with him. And obviously, there aren't that many words for X and U in food. <laughs> and then Q was actually quesadilla. So and for me, it was just like this wow moment. And I feel like as a dad, you open your eyes so much more because you want to filter everything for your kids. You're more sensitive to the stuff that is fed to them. And, you know, we're watching a TV show like, holy crap, I watched this. This is a terrible show to watch. Like, <laughs> so how did I watch this as a kid? But when I was playing with him and seeing these kind of these cards, I was like, wow. I would have never in a million years as a kid had thought I would see that like something like this, like see a Chinese food, Japanese food, Mexican dish, like in these cars. But, and that was, to be honest, Kiwi Co was started by an Asian American founder. And so, you know, that probably had some influence in it, but that's why I'm saying by starting our own houses, we can influence and make impact on the world in ways that you just might not be able to at someone else's company because the values are different. They're not your own. So I think for me, you know, I don't know. I feel like, it's not an art because I'm just posting like sometimes I just post raw emotion. And like when I get upset about something, I just write and I write and then it just comes out on LinkedIn, whether it's, you know, verbal diarrhea or whatnot, it just comes out. But sometimes it's like those moments where you think, wow, I want to support this company and let people know that they should check this out. Because this was a really cool moment for me to experience. And there should be more companies that do this or like the band-aids of different skin tones. If black people always have to wear light skin band-aids, like, Again, another way, subtle way of not feeling included in any business plans from or marketing plans, right? So I think it's a lot of these things where people, I want people to realize what it means and how important it is to feel included. And I'm very fortunate. I grew up in a mostly, like when I was up until fifth grade, I was mostly black, black neighborhood. And so I was made very aware of, you know, what black people go through and, and being friends with them. And then as I went through high school, I had a lot more Asian friends and I didn't feel necessarily ostracized, but I felt more included. But I think for a lot of kids I know, because they didn't feel included, they had to feel like they had to assimilate or lose their own identity to feel like they fit in. And that, to me, is just really sad. So the inclusiveness of just as small as a Band-Aid or a food on a little kid's game, that can make the biggest difference. I mean, you know, when I was a kid and I was looking for any TV show that had someone look at me on it that wasn't some kung fu master, that was a big deal. It was a normal kid. Like, oh, he speaks English just like me and he's a normal kid. I'm like, that's great. But I had to look far and wide for anyone like that. And I think no kid wants to feel like that because then they feel more and more alone. And so for me, the more I can kind of encourage people to be inclusive in their workplace, in their products, in their marketing. And, and LinkedIn is where a lot of these you know folks have that influence and impact on others that they may not realize they have. But you know, when I turn on Netflix, I can see shows in all the different languages, all the different you know, countries, everything. It's like, wow. This is the first time I think I could just on TV, I could pick whatever I want and feel like I can go anywhere. And I see all people, Bridgerton and South Asian women being represented in you know that time period. I'm like, what? So for me, I think all of that is so important to make people feel like, you know, not like they're on the outside looking in. Another thing that I love about like your mentality, it is so inclusive and you speak a lot about the Asian American experience and how to support and invest in Asian American founders. But you also talk about women all the time. And you mentioned here in this conversation, 40% 
of the companies that Hyphen Capital has invested in have a female founder or co-founder versus single digits in terms of the amount of venture capital funding that is invested in female founders overall for the sector. And I want to read one thing that you wrote that I want you to know gave me some, you know, some rocket fuel when I read it. I was just like, that's so fucking cool, Dave Liu. (laughs) You were talking about the experience that some of the female founders that you all have invested in, some of their experience with bullying, some of their experience with being the target of abusive or sexist behavior. And you said, ironically, the misogynistic trolls that are targeting these women will be still living in their mother's basements while these founders continue changing the world. And I just wanted to read it because it was just like an example of your just punchy, no holds barred style and tone. And here you are a successful male investor, you know, really talking about how to invest in and support your female founders. And just as an ally for a totally different identity group, you know, to be able to lend your voice, your sense of security, the platform that you have to other people. It was amazing role modeling from my perspective, like amazing leadership. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, if not for my mom and my grandmother and my sister and the influences I've had in my life, my wife, I mean, I see, I think one of the biggest problems that most of us have in this country that why we're so divided is because we don't have enough empathy and understanding for what other people are going through. And so through, you know, their eyes and seeing what, you know, they've gone through or what my other women I know have gone through and hearing their stories and saying, wait a second, that doesn't check up. I've never experienced that. And just being constantly surprised at how clueless I was about the things they were dealing with. I was like, what? That happens? And then the same thing with, you know, my black and like Latinx friends. I'm like, wait, that is absurd that these things happen. But if you know that in your mind and your heart and you don't do something about it, then you're just as guilty and complicit as anyone else is at keeping it going, right? So for me, I, I can't know this in my head and then feel okay with it. And then, you know, if you look at social media enough and you read some of the comments that I don't know if they're bots or they're actually human people that feel this way, but you got to be kidding me. There's actual people that unless I swear, I hope it's a bot, but if there's a human behind this that actually thinks that way, then we are in you know bigger trouble than we realize. But I think the only way to push back on that and to open the eyes of others is, you know, sometimes I don't fault people for not being proactively speaking out because they might not be aware. And if I don't do my job in educating them and making them aware, awareness leads to action. Like at some point, if you don't I can't blame them if they had no idea there was a problem in the first place. If people don't know that 2% of venture capital has gone to women, like that number is not like horrible enough as it is. And 2% have gone to black and Latinx founders. Like that number alone should make you want to do something. And if it doesn't, then you might want to check, you know, your beliefs and what you really stand for because like you're literally keeping out all these people from the club. And so I think when you are aware and you have knowledge and you don't do something about it, then it's on you. Mm-hmm. As you were explaining that, I was thinking about our professor from Stanford, Irv Grosbeck. He always used to say, if something feels bad, it probably is. <laughs> you know? ah, and so really exactly. being aware of that tightness in your chest or that kind of sick feeling in your gut or you know whatever the impulse is, sometimes that physical impulse hits us before we have the intellectual awakening that we need to do something about it, but kind of tuning mm-hmm. into how your body is responding. Dave, I know we're coming up on our last couple of minutes and I wanted to invest them in just hearing from you. One of the things that you said recently, and it was, and it was around the release of band-aids in many different hues for many different skin tones. And you said, 
being dismissive of the innate need to feel included is what divides us. And you said something similar earlier in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so as we think about the folks for whom the products are always designed for, you know, they're always at the center, they're always included, you know, the world revolves around them in many different respects. How do we generate the empathy that we need so that more people feel like they're at the center of the universe? And the part of the reason why I ask that question is when we feel included, we can feel at our best, you know, we can spend all the energy that we may have spent on self-preservation and self-protection instead being the best versions of ourselves, Mm -hmm. building Mm -hmm. the best companies, building the best teams, you know, contributing. So from your perspective, the sense of how to include, you know, what affirmative actions do we want people to take to help create that sense of inclusion for everyone? Yeah, it's funny. I was reading about this. I think it was, <laughs> there was someone on Survivor last night. I didn't watch Survivor. I read Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's blog and or Substack. And he was talking about how I think there's like four contestants and they were like, I think they're all black. And they were saying, man, why is it always like the black survivors that always get eliminated right away? And we never get, and it's like, and one of the other contestants who was a white male said, are you calling me a racist? And accusing like, he was very defensive. And he said, why would you? And two of the black women had to talk to him or, or console him and whatever. And someone commented on Twitter. It's like, why do we always have to comfort, you know, other people who need to learn this? Like we have to deal with enough as it is. And we have to bring you like kind of educate you on this stuff too. So it's kind of this, like a lot of us are tired of having to do this because we're already dealing with ourselves. And so nothing wrong with your question. Cause I think it's why would someone who's already comfortable want to be uncomfortable? And I'm like, everything's for me already. Why should I need to change? And then it's like, well, we need you to change so we can feel comfortable. Like, yeah, that's not my problem. But I think these small things like sharing those real moments with people and understanding what, and maybe somehow them translating that to their own experience and saying, oh, wow, I didn't realize that all the foods I had as a kid on my cards were all things that I know and had nothing to do with any other cultures or whatnot. So, but I think those things and also just kind of people who read my stuff, I don't know, they could be all Asian. They could all be people of color. They could all be women. But certain audiences might be like, forget it, I'm not reading this. And I can't force them to read it. But if on the off chance they do and they see a perspective other than their own and they're like, it just makes them think, that's the most I can do. I'm not trying to educate like every white male in the world on this stuff. I'm trying to give strength to people of color and women to give them a voice and make sure they get heard. And then they they feel like empowered to speak themselves, that it's okay that they see someone else who's like, wait, this guy who, you know, is investing and is a founder and raised money and went to Stanford is saying this stuff out loud. That's career suicide. I'm like, no, like I say this because I want others to say it's okay to speak up and, you know, to not be passive about these things or take it. And so for me, it's like, if I can get more people to speak up, then maybe all of our voices will be heard by other people who need to hear it. But it's not for those audiences because, you know, (laughs) it's like that'd be for me, that's kind of exhausting sometimes. So, but, you know, I do write and try to think about like all the audiences that might be reading. And, you know, I think this is not as relevant to this probably talk, but I think writing is, I don't think I'm a good writer. People keep telling me like, they're like, oh, like you're a great writer. And I was like, I just write for fun. I don't proofread anything. I just write. (laughs) But I think writing is a gift and a blessing that everyone should like sharpen and hone and, you know, get better at because storytelling is probably the most important skill anyone in any career can have. Whether you have to 
if you're a founder, you have to raise money, you have to sell, you have to hire. Like in any job, storytelling is the most important thing. And so the writing part of it, being able to communicate, for me, that's how I scale my message. Like I can't give a thousand podcast interviews. I can't go to talks at every single company. What I can do is write and that can get viewed a million times or two million times and then that message gets amplified. So I think as long as you write something that resonates, will keep getting shared. It'll touch more and more people. Because if I'm just... Before I kept to myself in a self-preservation mode, I would just write on Facebook and only my friends would see me yapping about all sorts of stuff. And now it's like, oh, okay, well, now I'm writing for more people and bigger audience. I see the impact it's having on more and more folks who need to hear it, who would otherwise not hear it. Dave, thank you for sharing those thoughts. And thank you for that that final thought in particular around storytelling and really inviting people of all different backgrounds to tell their stories. Dave Liu, managing partner at Hyphen Capital, co-founder of Expo, leader of Stand with Asian Americans. Such a treat to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.